Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 In the things that we have looked at in the weeks prior to this, we have been exploring, among other things, the sacrificial nature of culture. And we've been using the cultural analysis of René Girard, a Stanford scholar, and applying it with some slight alterations here and there to literary text and to scriptural text, and to see what it could help us learn about our own conditions, spiritual and cultural. The point needs to be made that the sacrificial mechanism or victimization is an attempt to prevent or to terminate violence by the application of official violence. You'll remember the argument that Captain Veer supplies in Billy Budd uh, when he says, uh, we must make an example of Billy Budd, uh, else all the regulations and rules and codes will be called into question, and what happened in revolutionary France will happen in the English Navy. So we have to resort to official violence in order to prevent or terminate uh, random, reciprocal, unofficial violence. And that is a, in miniature, a version of the service that the sacrificial cult has provided to human culture since the very beginning. So let's recognize that it provides a service. It prevents or terminates violence by a small dose of it. Caiaphas, who is the great articulator of the, of the rationale, says it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. So with murder in the cathedral, I would like for us to begin to move on beyond the analysis of the situation, which has more or less preoccupied us, and to begin to look for an alternative to the sacrificial mechanism, to ask ourselves if the gospel's And the Passion Story have, as we have said, compromised the sacrificial system and made it less functioning. Does that same tradition, that is to say the Christian tradition, have something by which to replace this more primitive system? So that's the question. We can't, I think, go... I don't think we can leave the diagnostic phase of this study behind we will always be needing to analyze and decode the sacrificial mechanism. The cult's adaptability, tenacity, and capacity to scandalize all concern combine to make it an almost closed system. That is to say, I had the image this week of being in one of those posh auctions where you have to be careful about scratching your ear lest you buy a $25,000 painting. The sacrificial cult is like that. It has a hair trigger. And once you recognize it for what it is, almost anything you do will trigger another manifestation of it. It is almost a closed system. And our hope is it is not a completely closed system. And if it is not a closed system, where is the opening out of it? Most straightforward attempts to break out of it, even the bravest and most brilliant ones, have merely resulted in the redeployment of the cult in different directions, to the left rather than the right, or right rather than the left, toward a different victim or set of victims, 
and with its claims to moral legitimacy based on different slogans. So the perennial appeal and the uh, capacity of this cult to insinuate itself into almost anybody's agenda requires that we constantly be on the alert for it and be in the business of diagnosing it. But now I think we can begin to augment the diagnosis with some reflections on what might replace it, if anything, out of the Christian experience. Barring any veto from the Spirit, I would like for us to move from a sacrificial mechanism for preventing or terminating the, the climactic violence in culture to a sacramental mode of dealing with this same problem. We saw the film The Mission last week, and in about four months or so, I want us to see the film Babette's Feast. And so what I'm trying to do is get from the mission to Babette's Feast. Now, if you've seen Babette's Feast, you'll understand the journey. It's from the, the kind of witnessing that is at the climax of the sacrificial operation that is so dramatic and was dramatic in that film, the mission, to the kind of sacramental attention to the standard daily confusions of the human situation that's represented by Babette and Babette's feet. So, to murder in the cathedral. Let me say at this point, all I'm going to do today, if there's time, is read the first chorus. But I'm not going to do that till the very end. So, all of this is trying, it will be an attempt to put this play and what it means in context before we begin. With murder in the cathedral, T.S. Eliot is exploring the role of the church in modern society. He is using a historical event from the 12th century, but his interest is in the modern church. He wrote this play about a year after he wrote the choruses to a pageant entitled The Rock, uh, in which he was also exploring the role of the church. But in this play, more with greater control over the material. He was only one of the contributors to this pageant earlier, but in this play, he is in complete control, and he begins to explore what the church means in the modern world. Now, I've said this before. If you think of the Christian claim is, article of faith, is that the Christ event is singular and pivotal and central in history. If that claim is to hold up, or for those who who feel that way, then if you leap forward 50,000 years and you are looking back at our time, you look at the year 1989 and it will seem like early Christianity. So from that perspective, people will look back on our age and say they were the early Christians. They were just beginning to come to grips with the meaning of the Jesus event. They were struggling, as we think of the early church, the late first century, the second and third century, the first councils, grappling with how do you, how do you understand your experience? Your experience is that somehow, and this is where the spirit comes in, your experience is somehow this thing is central and pivotal and transforming, but not, but exactly how, one's not too sure. So there's that, the early church struggles to understand why it is central. 
and in what respect. And 50,000 years from now, we will be regarded as the early church, so we ought to behave like one, which is, and we are. We are struggling with understanding the centrality of the Jesus event. So we should start, I think, our reflections on Merton Cathedral by assuming that we do not know what the church is for. So erase any idea. If you stop to think of it, you probably won't have very many to erase. Uh, what is the church? Because we never ask ourselves that question. It just is. You see, it's just like a it's a it's a familiar institution. One doesn't. What's it for? Well, it will clearly have two major roles. One is the sanctification of each uh, of each of our lives, and the other is a historical role. It claims those two roles. It claims to be of aid in the coming to holiness of a, of an individual in his or her own life, and it claims to be the remedy for for the terrors of human history. Well, the last in, in the last two pictures of the church that uh, we had an opportunity to savor. Uh, represented by the chaplain in Billy Budd and by the papal le legate in the mission, were pictures of an uneasy alliance with the powers and principalities and were not terribly flattering pictures of the church. By the way, when I say church, I, I don't mean this church or that church. Uh, so I'm not necessarily talking about a particular institution, uh, but what, what we ought to mean by the word ecclesia the Greek word from which we get the word church. So anyway, we had, uh, we had unflattering uh, examples of that in these last two things that we uh, observed. So it, it's fitting to call in uh, uh, Nikolai Berdyaev's comment. Berdyaev is a uh, Russian philosopher, early 20th century. As a social institution acting in history, the church is fallible and bears the same limitations as all social phenomena. It has served worldly interest, has soiled its hands, has passed off the temporal for the eternal. In this sense, one may await and demand from the historic church repentance, the recognition of its sins, and of its partial betrayal of Christ. As with any institution, in all of its manifestations, it's made a lot of terrible mistakes, and we've noticed some in these last two things we've looked at. But knowing that it is a far cry from what it ought to be is itself a, f a far cry from knowing what it ought to be. I used to be frustrated with Martin Buber because he referred to himself as a religious anthropologist. And I thought that was a cop-out, sort of. I thought, well, why don't you just refer to yourself as a theologian or as a something? But a religious anthropologist, I didn't quite like that. But I've recently come very much to like that term. So if, if we don't know what the church is, perhaps we should all become, for a while, religious anthropologists and approach the church that way and look at human culture, human history, and see what the church has to say, if anything, about that. But since we don't know what it's for, I want to read a little poem to put us in the mood of not knowing what it's for. But before I do that, I want to call attention to the difference between this poem and a little passage in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John of Patmos says, Then I was given a long cane as a measuring rod, and I was told, Go and measure God's sanctuary and the altar and the people who worship there. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next few minutes. For John of Patmos, 
when he started to go about this business, he encountered two angels with flames coming out of their mouths <laughs> who were then killed and then were raised from the dead. When he went about finding out what the church was, taking its, its measure, uh, he discovered this awesome thing because he was a tremendous poet and a tremendous man of faith who was in prison. And uh, those are circumstances that incline one to see the church in different terms. But most of us are more like Philip Larkin. But he's a religious anthropologist, too, in his own way. And so he wrote a poem entitled Church Going. Once I'm sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting seats and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers, cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, a tense, musty, unignorable silence brewed God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence, move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet, stop I did. In fact, I often do and always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for, wondering, too, when churches fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into. If we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep, shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come, to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. Power of some sort or other will go on in games and riddles, seemingly at random, and what remains when disbelief has gone? There's a question for you. And what remains when disbelief has gone? Grassy, Weedy pavement, brambles, buttress sky. A shape less recognizable each week. A purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were. Some ruin bibber, randy for antique. Or Christmas attic, counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh? Or will he be my representative? Bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb shrub because it held unspilt so long and equably what sense is found only in separation. Marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these for whom was built this special shell? For though I've no idea what this accoutred 
frosty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destiny, and that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie around. Well, there's a religious anthropologist of, uh, that I think we can relate to. And all he knows is that he likes to go there. Otherwise, he's bored and uninformed. But then at the end of the poem, it says, people will always come there because someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious. And so... What he does find out is that it's a place where one can go and discover a long-lost hunger, a longing. It's the kind of longing C.S. Lewis talked about, where he said, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing. So it's a place to go where one can find the longing. C.S. Lewis said of that longing, that it tends inevitably to be confused with common or even vile satisfactions lying close at hand. So a longing is discovered in this church. Now, why isn't it discovered outside? Well, it's occasionally discovered outside, uh, but it's so quickly converted into something else outside, mimetic desire. It's converted into something that isn't up like longing, to seem like an appropriate place for us to invest it. Now, occasionally, there comes along someone who understands the world sacramentally, one who can have all of those wonderful desires for the beauties of life without rendering them exclusively in terms of the mimetic process. I'm thinking of Dante. Well, all of that is just a way of saying that even one of the bored and uninformed uh, religious anthropologists like Philip Larkin discovers in that sanctuary a longing which, when he goes outside, gets converted quickly into something else. But we still don't know what the church is for, and neither do the women of Canterbury, who, who comprise the chorus in Eliot's play. Philip Larkin and ourselves are early Christians trying to figure out what it's for. And so, of course, are the women of Canterbury. And they're very much like Philip Larkin, in a way, as the, as the play begins. I'll just read the very first lines. Here let us stand, close by the cathedral. Here let us wait. Are we drawn by danger? Is it the knowledge of safety that draws our feet towards the cathedral? What danger can be for us, the poor, the poor women of Canterbury? What tribulation with which we are not already familiar? There is no danger for us, and there is no safety in the cathedral. So they begin by asking themselves, what, what are we doing here? There is something they feel. There's an ambience. They begin in the lines that follow this to explore that feeling, what it is. When all is said and done, it's very much like the feeling that 
Philip Larkin had. He says, I don't know why I'm here. I just like to come here, I, or somehow it feels like the appropriate place to be. Well, the women of Canterbury asked, is it because it's, there's a danger? They feel a danger in the air, but the, there is no danger for them, and the, and the cathedral is no sanctuary from it. So why are they there? Why are we there? Or why, why are we drawn, whether we're there or not? If we ever are, why are we drawn? Like Philip Larkin, we and the women of Canterbury keep coming round, sensing in the church's environment a longing that we have all but smothered, and sensing also something ominous. Could it be that we and they are on the verge of a discovery toward which we feel the utmost ambivalence? It's one of the great things that Elliot has given us with the women of Canterbury. Their vague sense of ambivalence. We and they know somehow that now is a critical moment. And we also would rather return to something more familiar. In the piece that Elliot had written, or the number of pieces that he had written for this pageant entitled The Rock, uh, a year before he wrote The Murder in Cathedral, there is this passage. It is hard for those who have never known persecution and who have never known a Christian to believe these tales of Christian persecution. It is hard for those who live near a bank to doubt the security of their money. It is hard for those who live near a police station to believe in the triumph of violence. Do you think that the faith has conquered the world and that lions no longer need keepers? Do you need to be told that whatever has been can still be? This, by the way, is 1935. Before, we under, before the world knew what Stalin had done or what Hitler was doing or what Mao would do, and maybe we have to add a few more names. Do you need to be told that whatever has been can still be? Do you need to be told that even such modest attainments as you can boast in the way of polite society will hardly survive the faith to which they owe their significance. That's Eliot's way of saying, uh, uh, and what remains when disbelief has gone? Do you think that decorum will survive the decline of the vision of the world that made it appropriate? Men, polish your teeth on rising and retiring. Women, polish your fingernails. You polish the tooth of the dog and the talon of the cat. Why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws? She tells them of life and death and of all that they would forget. She is tender where they would be hard and hard where they would like to be soft. She tells them of evil and sin and other unpleasant facts. They constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. But the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be. And the Son of Man was not crucified once for all. The blood of the martyrs not shed once for all. The lives of the saints not given once for all. But the Son of Man is crucified always.
and there shall be martyrs and saints. And if blood of martyrs is to flow on the steps, we must first build the steps. And if the temple is to be cast down, we must first build the temple. The temple is, is the place of sacrifice, the sacrificial place. But if it is to be cast down, we must first build the temple or a replica of it. And so in his next literary adventure, Eliot wrote Murder in Cathedral, and in choosing not just the theme, which was a popular enough theme, the murder of Thomas Beckett, but in choosing the form, Greek tragedy, and the setting to be performed in church, he does something very much like what's alluded to here. If the temple is to be cast down, we must first build the temple. So in with Larkin-like befuddlement, we ask, before we even get into the play, just looking at its structure, its theme, its literary genre, and its locale, we ask, what have we here? What hath Eliot wrought? A Greek tragedy performed in a Christian church. Greek tragic drama has its roots in human sacrifice. Its primitive root is hard to uh, put our finger on precisely, but we know this much about it, that in its most primitive form, it involved either a ritualized or most likely in the first instance a spontaneous sacrifice of a human victim. A Dionysian frenzy which was to welcome in the new springtime energies, which ended in the sacrifice of a victim, perhaps spontaneous in the first instance, a dismembering of Dionysus. Later this was ritualized and the victim was a prominent person in the culture, a member of a royal household, a temple virgin. And later still, there was substituted for this prominent person, the pharmacos, someone kept aside outside of the cultural containment, either because they were criminal, physically or mentally aberrant. And so the pharmacos is brought in and takes the place of the member of the royal family or the temple virgin, and later still an animal takes the place of the pharmacos. But in the time of Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides and so on, the altar of Dionysus still stood right behind the play. Because the play was still, the tragic play, were still part, uh, all of these plays that we think of as the great high point in drama, to have been two, two high points in drama, Elizabethan drama and, and 5th century Athens drama. The first of these in 5th century Athens, the great high point, all of those plays took place in the, in the Dionysian festivals in late March, early April, every year. And they were direct descendants of the sacrificial uh, victimization. So that what we get in those dramas is another version of the death of Dionysus. Only this time it is, say, Oedipus. What we have is an attenuated form of the sacrificial event. The chorus was originally all there was to these rituals. It was a chorus, the, the 
dithyrambic chorus was 50 uh, men dressed in goatskin, dressed uh, as satyrs, circling around the altar and performing the sacrifice and intoning and chanting the Dionysian liturgy as they do so. And in that intonation and incantation, catching up everybody in the liturgy of the sacrificial event. The dithyrambic chorus was the priesthood of the sacrificial cult. Well, we could go into the details of how this evolved, and it's that we, we know pretty much how it evolved, particularly when it gets to 6th century Athens, and we, we know who, in fact, caused the chorus, to, the chorus leader and the chorus to start dialoguing. And then somebody adds a, an actor, and then um, somebody adds another actor, and pretty soon they, you have the drama that we're familiar with now. But we don't need to go into that except to say that we have here a parallel what we have observed earlier in our sessions uh, in the Hebrew tradition. Without the stronger religious feature of the Hebrew rejection of sacrifice, when the Hebrews begin to reject sacrifice, the prophets say, God does not want that, but wants mercy and justice there's a higher level of consciousness and intensity and religious concern in the Hebrew tradition, I think. However, they're perfectly parallel. They begin with human sacrifice and they move two steps forward, one step back, away from it by making substitutions. They substitute non-human victims for human victims. And then they try to make up both traditions, try to make up for that substitution by enhancing the ritual, enhancing the liturgy in the Hebrew tradition, enhancing the dramatic event in the Greek tradition. Both trying to achieve, you see, when, when Aristotle looks at the Greek tragedy, he says it's obviously an attempt to achieve catharsis. He's very close to an understanding of the, of the, of the meaning of the sacrificial act. The attempt on the part of Greek tragedy was to achieve this catharsis without an actual human death. And so one, one needs Sophocles, you see, or Aeschylus, to pour his creative energies into that endeavor to achieve the necessary catharsis uh, without the actual human victimization. In the Hebrew context, we could move from Ben-Hinnom or any of the other high, high places where human sacrifices were offered to animal substitution, just as we move from the Dionysian frenzy to animal substitution, and then to ritual enhancements in order to try to make up the difference. And we come finally to the sacrificial altar in the Jewish tradition, which was at the Temple of Jerusalem, where the animals were sacrificed, and in the Greek tradition to the orchestra pit with the altar behind. And Eliot has brought both of these together because... As he says in the rock, if the temple is to be cast down, we must first build a temple. Simon Weil said this, The presence of illusions which we have abandoned, but which are still present in the mind, is perhaps the criterion of truth. It's an interesting thing. The presence of illusions which we have abandoned, but which are still in the mind, is perhaps the criterion of truth. Well, almost in, a, in an architectural way, we have here in the setting, the presence of illusions which we hope to have abandoned or are in the process of abandoning, 
but they are still present. And so they give us an opportunity to see the, the nature of the transition that Christianity is involved with. In both the Hebrew religious tradition and the Greek tragic theater tradition, the weakening of the sacrificial cult was accompanied with a liturgical and or dramatic enhancements designed to compensate for the absence of a human victim. What made it possible for these two traditions to abandon the sacrificial, the human victimization, gradually to abandon human victimization, was the availability of another quote-unquote institution at hand which would take up that sacrificial cult and be able to perform it with moral impunity. If the truth of the sacrificial cult is revealed, we would all find it repulsive. It can only be revealed to those who are outside of its mythos. When you're inside its mythos, it makes perfect sense. So we can recognize it when we look at the Aztecs because we're outside. It's hard to recognize it when we look at the ones that we're involved in. Now, unquestionably, in minor ways, we're involved in a thousand of them. But the one I'm trying to call attention to is, a, is the macrocosmic one. And so we would say, now how do we locate that? We look for a place where humans are killing humans with moral impunity in an attempt to restore order. That's the sacrificial cult. Now the reason the Hebrews and the Greeks could back off from the human victimization is that they had at hand something that was taking up the slack, namely a historical imperative. They had, his, they had historical enemies, and the whole uh, campaign to rid themselves of historical enemies provided them, and to rid themselves of internal enemies who might be collaborating with their historical enemies, provided the mythological cover for a functioning sacrificial system. So anyway, what I'm saying is that there is this other sacrificial system, namely what we think of as not history so much as historical imperative. The kind of thing that Captain Veer was trying to, to serve when he knew that if, no matter what the extenuating circumstances, if somebody uh, kills a, a, a senior officer on board a ship, you better hang him because otherwise you'll have a mutiny. Better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. That is a sacrificial system. It simply is one that we don't react to with revulsion because it's too much a part of us. So here are three observations, uh, one from René Girard, one from Henry Adams, and one from me, which is a rehash of, of the other two. Girard says, it was not because men invented science that they ceased to hunt witches, but it is because they ceased to hunt witches that they invented science. And Henry Adams said, the decline of religion made it necessary to invent a steam engine. I would paraphrase that and say, the decline of human sacrificial victimization made it necessary to invent history, or at least the historical imperative, something that would justify the victimization that had to now occur on larger and larger scale because it had been called into question. The, the powers and principalities, the forces behind that system are so powerful 
and the only option it has now is to increase the scope of its victimization in order to try to convene its authority. This is a, this is a terrible dilemma. But I, I want to sort of set the scene for the, for the entrance on stage of the, of the women of Canterbury because they come on stage feeling all of this. So the decline of human sacrificial victimization made it necessary to invent history or the historical imperative. That is to say, the logic that drove Captain Veer and turned the chaplain in Billy Budd and the papal legate in the mission into moral eunuchs and is fully capable of turning any one of us into moral eunuchs too, by the way, lest we should think we would never happen to us. Here's what Eliot says later on in The Rock. The great snake lies ever half awake at the bottom of the pit of the world, curled in forms of himself until he awakens in hunger and moving his head to right and to left, prepares for his hour to devour. But the mystery of iniquity is a pit too deep for mortal eyes to plumb. Come ye out from among those who prize the serpent's golden eyes, the worshippers, self-given sacrifice of the snake, take your way and be ye separate. In terms of what we're talking about, it's a beautiful passage, powerful passage. And that's what I'm trying to do. We have been we have been peering down into that pit, looking at that curled snake, and I'm trying to take Elliot's advice. He says, The mystery of iniquity is a pit too deep for mortal eyes to plumb. Come ye out from among those who prize the serpent's golden eye. The worshippers, self-given sacrifice of the snake, take your way and be ye separate. The serpent's golden eyes, those who prize the serpent's golden eyes, that's the hypnotic trance that, that those powers and principalities have on us when the cult begins to manifest itself. And pretty soon, Jung says, when the wave of indignation sweeps the country, you'll find yourself among the sweepings. We pound the table and say, no, 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 whoever, whatever, see? That's because the serpent's golden eye. And Eliot says, be ye separate. There is both a moment in time and a location in space where this sacrificial system achieves a kind of epiphany for those who have the eyes to see it. And that is the climax of the sacrificial episode. It's the moment when the official logic that rationalizes the sacrificial victimization strains to exert its full authority because it is the moment when that authority might be seen for what it is so that the forces of revelation and the forces of mystification are struggling with each other at that moment. To be revealed or concealed, will it remain concealed and get away with it, or will there be those who see it for what it is? I think in this respect of a wonderful thing, a wonderful story about when, when Einstein and Oppenheimer watched the first mushroom cloud go up. The Manhattan Project had succeeded, and nobody knew what was going to happen when they pushed the button, and they saw this enormous explosion, and Oppenheimer 
looking through the little blue glasses, said, I have become death. And Einstein said, all men have become brothers. Now, it's the moment when the forces of revelation and the forces of concealment are struggling with each other. More typically, those two feelings are commingled. We feel somehow that a breakthrough has happened and also somehow that a terrible disaster has occurred. See? We feel both what Oppenheimer felt and what Einstein felt at the same time. Oppenheimer sees one thing and Einstein sees another. Most of us see have, have a more ambivalent feeling as the women of Canterbury did. They sense both what Oppenheimer senses and what Einstein senses. In Billy Budd, there's that passage where it says, at that moment, the moment that he's hanged, at that moment it chanced that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with the soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical vision. At the moment, he's hung. And it's horrible, and it's somehow a revelation, and it's all commingled together. And the women of Canterbury say, I have seen these things in a shaft of sunlight. That's Eliot's way. He used that in earlier poems. That's his way of calling attention to that moment when somehow the angle is just right and one sees something. This is the moment of crisis, the moment of judgment, which is what the Greek word crisis means, the moment of truth. And for those who are not completely seduced by the sacrificial mystifications, a revelation. Those who experience this awakening and manage to stay awake beyond it look back and see the victim as a martyr. And the word means witness. One who has witnessed with his or her life to the truth. In the event, which is unlikely in the primitive setting and more likely as things progress, that some survive the sacrificial episode who are resistant to its justifying rationale, they will find that that very resistance has made them cultural outsiders. And so they are members of the church. The word means the outsiders, those who have been called out. Ecclesia means those who have been called out. So they are already at least catechumenates in the ecclesia because having seen what has happened and not fallen for the rationalization, they are cultural outsiders. And what they do next is crucial. If the morally exposed cult so scandalizes those who suddenly recognize it for what it is that they react violently, then the cult reasserts itself under slightly altered premises. Billy Budd was scandalized. We, too, would likely be scandalized. There's a place in um, J.V. Langmead Casserly's survey of Christian existentialists where he makes the following remarks uh, in, a, in an essay on, uh, on the works of uh, Gabriel Marcel. He says this, There is a sense in which we can validly talk about the problem of evil, and that, significantly enough, is the one sense in which the Christian can intelligibly claim 
that the problem has been solved by Jesus Christ and is therefore in principle soluble by us in and through Jesus Christ. The true problem of evil is not the speculative problem of making sense of the fact of evil in terms of a Christian theodicy, but the problem of learning so to live with evil and to endure its sting without reciprocation, that faith may not be confounded, hope extinguished, and charity transformed into bitterness and hate. The existential problem Christ solved triumphantly on the cross. The salient feature there is without reciprocation. The title of the play is Murder in the Cathedral. It's a striking title. Sounds like something from Agatha Christie. It is in the cathedral that we recognize this thing as a murder because the cathedral is the architectural expression for the revelation of the sacrificial cult as murderous. So when it happens in proximity to the cathedral and all that the cathedral symbolizes, it becomes a recognizable murder. And our job is to spread the church to the ends of the earth. That's the historical task. So that when it happens, it will be called what it is. The church is the place where the struggle between the sacrificial cult and its camouflaging myths on one hand and the gospel revelation on the other takes place. There's a wonderful passage in, in Hamlet where Hamlet, who has mistakenly killed Laertes' father, causing Laertes to arise in passion. Laertes and the king are having a conversation, and the king is performing his role as the scandalon. And watch how wonderfully he performs it. He performs it like Iago and Claggart. The king says, Laertes, was your father dear to you? Or are you like the painting of a sorrow, a face without a heart? And Laertes says, why ask you this? The king, not that I think you did not love your father, but I know love has begun by time, and that I see in passages of proof, time qualifies the spark and fire of it. For goodness, growing to a pleurisy, dies in its own too much. That we would do, we should do when we would, for this wood changes and hath abatements and delays as many as there are tongues or hands or accidents. And then this should is like a spin-thrift sigh that hurts by easing. But to the quick of the ulcer, Hamlet comes back. What would you undertake to show yourself your father's son indeed more than in words? And Laertes says, to cut his throat in the church. And the king says, no place indeed should murder sanctuarize. Revenge should have no bound. Notice what's being said, in a way, by this passage. The church is the place least hospitable to the sacrificial cult. And the measure of the, of, of the degree to which somebody has been scandalized is the degree to which they are willing to perform the murder in the proximity of the Christian sanctuary. Because that is the antithesis of the sacrificial act ought to be, because that's the place where the revelation of its murderousness is located. And Laertes, fully scandalized, says, I would cut his throat in the church. 
I share that with you just to indicate what's where the struggle takes place and the two forces. In the film, The Mission, Father Gabriel, the priest who refuses to resort to violence, and Captain Mendoza, the one who chooses it, are both killed. The question is, which death will be most easily dismissed by the killers and the cultural enterprise they serve? It doesn't take long to know that. It's much easier to dismiss the death of someone who has taken up arms. 